MKUltra, Zodiac, and the Sons of Sam. Is there a connection between the CIA's secret thought control project and the satanic activities of the 1960s and 70s? This is a true crime one-on-one -on -one special from the Fiddle World Chronicles for July 15th, 2021. Jason Cousin and I, Eric Render King Fisk, share our long-awaited conversation about the Netflix documentary series, The Sons of Sam by director-producer Joshua Zeman, who also brought us Cropsy and Killer Legends. Jay and I try to link some of the most infamous crimes from more than 45 years ago through circumstantial connections, strange coincidences, and similar locations. Is there an overlap between Maury Terry's book, The Ultimate Evil, The Search for the Sons of Sam, and Tom O'Neill's Chaos, Charles Manson, The CIA, and The Secret History of the 60s? Thanks for listening and stay tuned. We are going to dedicate this episode to superfan Carolyn out in Tucson because uh, the last night that I was out in Tucson, um, we were sitting together having uh, pizza and we were actually watching episode one of Sons of Sam. And she kept telling me <laughs> to hit the pause and then we were talking about these little bombshells. And I'm thinking to myself... Yeah. Somehow, some way, if we ever make it out to Tucson, Arizona on a regular basis, this is the person who I would like to be uh, the co-host on our regular true crime show if we can do it once a week. Because we were definitely on the same page, but she noticed things that I didn't notice, or she took notice of things that I noticed, and it made me feel less crazy because she's one of the nicest people I know. She's seriously, I mean, she is, it's one thing to teach a kid to read, but it's another thing to teach someone why to read. And that's what she did in the summer of 1981. Just want to throw that out there. So this episode, mm. and I, I, and there's a part of me that wishes that I wish we had a nicer topic, but the thing is that well, it was like, yeah. she gave me the inspiration in part to do this episode with you, Jay. And the, the name of this episode is the MK Ultra Zodiac Sons of Sam Connection. And Jay and I were talking. So we're, yeah. we're just not going to mention Chuck. We're leaving Chuck out. Is that it? Um, I w I'm going to sneak Chuck in later. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. <laughs> I'm going to sneak Chuck in later. Or at the end of the show. And why Chuck matters mm -hmm. in all of this. Now, you and I had this conversation, and I'm going to actually see if I can go back here, because I have so many damn tabs open. It's, <laughs> it's not even funny. Harrison, do I have a lot of tabs open? It's, it's a yeah. little funny. It's a little funny. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a lot funny. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of sad. Oh, geez. So the thing is, is that... Um, so the thing is, is that we were talking about whether or not we should record this at a later date. And I had asked you, um, I said, I'm, uh, I'm thinking we should move Sons of Sam up a week. And it says, really, 
we'll release it this week, you think? And I said, no, no, sorry, record it next week. And then, then you yeah. you said, you know, this dot, dot, dot. Um, I have a lot more to do before I feel confident in what it is that I'm about to say. And you post dot, dot, dot. And I wrote, <laughs> this is the funny part. I'm starting to develop the picture that Zodiac and the Sons of Sam and the Manson family are all interconnected with MK Ultra. And I know that this sounds like a crazy conspiracy theory, Jay. And then you responded by saying, <laughs> I had the same thought when I was watching the documentary. <laughs> well, shit. <Yep. laughs> well, shit. I suddenly yep. feel less crazy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this watching that documentary for someone, you know, like like us. Right. You know, who likes to entertain these conspiracy theories because they present in the documentary, they present Maury as, and I'm forgetting his last name, um, Maury Terry, is it? Yes. They present him as being a very intelligent man. But then as you watch the documentary, they start saying, they start hinting that they think he kind of lost his mind. He got a little too far into this kind of a thing. Right, right. right. Which is kind of at that cusp is where you and I pretty much have lived since our 20s. So Pretty much. Harrison, pretty much. Harrison, would you agree that, that there there is an aspect to us that's a little crazy? Um, yeah. You can be you can be honest. I'm not I'm, <laughs> you can be honest. I, I'm not gonna ground you this time. I'm sorry this time. <laughs> so we were we were watching this documentary. And I had already seen it from beginning to end three times now. Oh, okay. okay. I've only seen it. I only seen it the once. So. Oh, oh, okay. All right. But anyway, continue. and it was just like this. It's like if you if you are into true crime and conspiracy theories, th this, <laughs> this is a holy grail. <laughs> this is the holy grail. This is this is this is this is like all your homework that you have ever done in doing other cases or read other books on similar topics. This this is sort of like it's I don't think it's so much the Holy Grail as it it's the Rosetta Stone. And yeah. if you talk to a conspiracy theorist or a true crime addict and you ask them about this documentary, they'll probably tell you everything that you need to know on the on this topic. Just just pure just just that's it. Pure and simple. Everything you need to know about some somebody, they will tell you by asking their opinion about this documentary. One of the things that I wanted to do really quickly for the first time listeners, I'm Eric Fisk from the Fedora Chronicles. On the other end of the line is Jay Cousineau, one of my best friends for almost, I'm going to, almost 25 years. And on my left here is Harrison Lucas Fisk, my son, who I think from a very early age, he realized something's not right with dad. I'm waiting for you to answer. Well. <laughs> well, what? I just don't have a response to that. Because <laughs> the thing is, is that this kid was raised on documentaries on, I mean, you know, I mean, science and, and, and news and information, but also like crazy conspiracy theories, serial killers. You know, I, I got to keep an eye and make sure that there's like no new dug up patches in the backyard in the woods because, uh, you know, I, I want to make sure that it's like I didn't create a monster or anything like that. 
<laughs> any, 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 if any, if any of your coworkers that piss you off go missing, that's the first place I'm going to look. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Paige Elmore is going to join us in a future episode where she and I are going to be talking uh, more about Tom O'Neill's book, Chaos, in the light of the, this documentary that we had just watched or rewatched. Now, in previous episodes, we've talked about MK Ultra, And once upon a time, there was this conspiracy theory about MKUltra. And MKUltra was a program where Dr. Stephen Goteb and Dr. Uh, Joe Lee West came up with the idea of doing experiments to see if whether or not they can control people's minds, either mind control or thought control, one, one of the other, using drugs. And it's like, is could anybody create a truth serum? And... There well, are, it was more mind control than truth serum. They've been experimenting with truth serums for a while. In fact, William Morstan, the guy who created Wonder Woman, was the guy that invented the truth, um, the lie detector machine. Right, which is which is kind of odd. Well, actually, no, if you think hmm. about it, Wonder Woman's magic lasso? Well, yeah, that's exactly it. But also, bear in mind, he was also in a thruple, as they call them nowadays, with his wife and his wife's girlfriend. So exactly. So um, during the late 40s, 50s, 60s, up until the early 70s, MK Ultra was the umbrella for all of these other secret CIA black op projects looking into whether or not they can get people to do things against their will and then forget about it later. And if they could use illicit drugs to get people to tell them things uh, um, that they wouldn't ordinarily tell. There's uh, one of the famous um, sub projects in MK ultra was operation midnight climax where they had women, women who were prostitutes who would seduce these men to come back to these apartments, drug them and get them to spill the beans on anything. And this, this is this Operation Midnight Climax went on for ages. And if you just do a quick search of MK Ultra, you will find a lot of evidence that points to the fact that this part of the government is actually kind of pretty evil. Is, it kind of, is, is there any other way I can say it, Jay? Um, not really. I mean, you'd be downplaying it otherwise. I mean, what do you think of, of, of MK Ultra? And, and don't hold back. Well, to me, MK Ultra is a prime example of everything wrong with having secret programs in the government, right? To some extent, a government needs to have secret programs. But then when you have a functionally unlimited budget and people who are so paranoid about their geopolitical enemies that they're willing to okay anything, that's where you get into some funky shit. Yeah. I mean, it sounds, it doesn't sound like something that happened in America. It sounds like, sounds like something that happened in Nazi Germany or Russia, but it just goes to show that just because you think you're the good guy doesn't mean that your government isn't yeah. doing something in your name that is decidedly evil. Unless people were being 
given drugs without their knowledge or consent. Yeah. Um, just to be sure here, um, Project MK Ultra is the code name given to a program of experiments on human subjects that was designed and undertaken by the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency, CIA, some of which was illegal. Experiments on humans were intended to develop procedures and identify drugs such as LSD to be used in air interrogations in order to weaken individuals and force confessions through brainwashing and psychological torture. The project was organized through the Office of Strategic Intelligence of the CIA, coordinated with the United States Army Biological Warfare Laboratories. Other code names for drug-related experiments were Project Bluebird and Project Artichoke. Uh, now it was a, a fish. Now it officially began in 1953. Uh, they pared it down in 1964, and. Um, even though it's like they were they were reducing the scope over and over and over again back in 1969 they had uh, and I'm sorry in 1967 it was cut back even further and then allegedly well notice we you'll use the word allegedly in 1973 <laughs> it was halted um, there was also which is why MK Ultra is a conspiracy theory favorite because we all know that there's secret squirrels projects that go on that you know once they're found out about they get renamed and shuffle off right right um that's just part and parcel to the whole thing because if you've donated a chunk of your life to pursuing something you aren't going to give it up that easily and there's always a way to find allies who will support you in a secret squirrel project like that there's a lot of people who would definitely agree that there's other things that have been going on through the u.s government all of this time and that there are oh, yeah. there's there's a lot of these other black op projects um whereas the government was doing things that it it was absolutely not supposed to do and there are all of these rumors that there were these um in these mental institutions all over the country they were actually committing these experiments on uh, unwilling and unknowing, I don't want to say mental patients, but patients who are in mental institutions. Because it's like, because right. uh, mental patient has become a pejorative. I talked about Crazy Mary, where there's this woman who escaped from uh, the, the local institute um, for mental health. And she said, they're the, the government's committing experiments on me. The government is, is conducting experiments on me. They're making me taking all of these drugs like LSD. And it's like sometimes she would escape wearing nothing but a hospital gown. And or she would just show up to local um, stores and restaurants in the surrounding area stark naked. And, and like, this is what they're doing to me. And so it's like they call the cops or they call the local security at the local institution, pick her up and, and put her away. And it's like, we all thought that this, this woman was crazy. And like we had said, this was the favorite conspiracy theory for conspiracy theorists because it just covers so much territory. Right. And, and the scope of even the stuff that they've admitted to doing is broad in geographic location. So it's not like you can say, okay, if you weren't in the hate Ashbury area, you had nothing to do with MK ultra. That was something else. Yeah. Because MK ultra was not only in California, it was in 
um, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't they also conduct experiments in Arizona, Nevada, Washington, Oregon? I could have sworn they were like all over the, basically the West Coast and then some. Well, from what they've admitted. Right. One of the things that we had also found out um, is um, in, let's see, what was the year with this? Um, the, the church committee and the Rockefeller commission investigations in the 19 that were in nine. I think that, I think they happened in 1975. Um, when it was released out into the public, the findings of these two committees, the church committee and the Rockefeller committee or the Rockefeller commission that the government was actually doing this. Like, um, this this was this was a bombshell as as early as 1975, if not sooner. Yeah. And the thing is, is that this is this is what the government has been doing with a lot of our tax dollars and in our name. I'm just going to read this off to well, you really quickly. Hold on. Yeah, go ahead. Just want to recap real quick. This started in the 50s, right? And then was exposed in the mid 70s, right? Um, uh, the United. Uh, the United States President, the United States President's Commission on CIA activities within the United States was set up under Gerald Ford in 1975 to investigate the activities of the Central Intelligence Agency and other intelligence agencies within the United States. The commission was led by the Vice President Nelson Rockefeller and is sometimes referred to as the Rockefeller Commission. The commission was created in response to a 1974 report in the New York Times that the CIA had conducted illegal domestic activities, including experiments on U.S. citizens during the 1960s. The commission issued a single report in 1975 touching upon certain CIA abuses, including mail opening and surveillance of domestic dissident groups. It, pub it publicized Project MKUltra a CIA mind control study. It also studied issues relating to the JFK assassination, specifically the head snap seen in the Sapruder film and the possible presence of E. Howard Hunt and Frank Sturgis in Dallas, Texas at that same time. Um, this was, this so was, it did a lot of shit. This, this is the origin of a lot of conspiracy theories that we no, have it's, Well, no, the thing is about the Rockefeller Commission is that it turned a lot of conspiracy theories into conspiracy fact. Right. And it, it, it was a validation for a lot of conspiracy theorists in the 1970s. Where it's like you have these people who are saying, see, I'm not so crazy. I'm not crazy. The government is out to get us, meaning people who right. nonconformists. Like yours truly. Um, although I wasn't persecuted back in 1975, I was a little too young for that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's just a baby. I was more. I was more obsessed with you know passing kindergarten and moving on to the first grade. I was not. A, <laughs> I was not a threat to anybody except for maybe my teachers because I was. I was a bear. <laughs> well, and your mother. But anyway, and, continuing yeah, on. Yeah. Um, so then, flash forward a couple of years ago. Tom O'Neill writes this brilliant book called Chaos in which he does a brilliant job, I think, sharing with us unrefutable proof that the CIA under 
MKUltra funded and supplied people like Charlie Manson with, quote, thought control drugs, unquote, or mind-altering drugs such as LSD to see what the effect would be on people. And also one of the things that Tom O'Neill had uncovered is that um, Charlie Manson must have been an informant to the police or the Department of Justice, NSA, whoever, whoever. We're not sure who exactly he was an informant for, whether it was local police or something bigger. But there were a lot of things about Charlie Manson that didn't make any sense. Um, even though he, he got picked up a number of times on suspicion for crimes that should have at least kept him in jail until his lawyer showed up and then he was released. He violated his parole oftentimes and the police just simply let him go. And one of the things that Tom O'Neill had documented in his book where there were many times when um, Charlie Manson was apprehended for parole violations and that somebody would call up and say, let him go, let him loose. And that's exactly what they did. And as we all know, Charlie Manson and the Manson family or the Manson family under Charlie Manson's direction committed the Tate LaBianca murders. And one of the things that Tom O'Neill makes perfectly clear is that Charlie Manson and company must have been responsible for other murders around the, the area. There were, there were a lot of unsolved um, cases that tied directly to Charlie Manson and members of his family, such as Tex Watson. And apparently Tex Watson had also committed some crimes while he was under the influence of Charlie Manson and the Manson family. Right. Um, he didn't exactly have a stellar record even before then. So. Right. So the thing is, is that this is where this crazy conspiracy theory of ours branches off in different directions, Jay. Mm -hmm. So the thing is, is that we have the Manson family and the connection to the Manson family, to the CIA through MK Ultra. Dr. Jolie West was running a clinic in the Haight-Ashbury area where he was supplying LSD to many people in the area. And one of the things that MKUltra had done is that they had these drug party rooms. And it's like people would just hang out, turn on, get loaded. And like these college students from the local college, I think it was Stanford, was um, they, they were just observing these people and, and committing experiments with these people who are taking their, their free drugs. I mean, hey, they're free drugs, you know? <laughs> yep. Party on, man. <laughs> um, now, this is around the same time where Charlie Manson meets people who are part of the process. And do you want to share with the people what the process was, Jay? Or No, let's see if I can sum it up. The process was, we'll call it an offshoot of the Church of Scientology. And am, am I remembering it right so far? Yep. The the yeah, process yeah. church of the final judgment. Right. So they were um, people who used to be um, members of the, of the Scientology church who then broke away from it, right? And this all started in England, if I remember correctly, right? Right. It was in London or something like that. And they allegedly, were allegedly right. Allegedly. <laughs> um, 
they also had operations in was it uh, New Orleans? Um, so it's really kind of there was a lot of allegations that they were Satanists or the equivalent of Satanists to the Church of Scientology. That's pretty much all I can say off the top of my head. But they well, were um, well. Let me just. They were yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. All right. The process, this is, again, this is from Wikipedia. The Process Church of the Final Judgment, commonly known as the Process Church, was a religious group established in the United Kingdom in 1963. Its founders of were a British couple, Mary Ann McLean and Robert D. Grimson, and it spread across parts of the United Kingdom, the United States, during the latter 1960s and 70s. Some scholars of religion, of religion classify it as a form of Satanism. McLean and De Grinson met with, with both members of the Church of Scientology in 1960s. The duo was ejected from the church in 1962 and married the following year. They started a Scientology splinter group called Compulsion Analysis, which incorporated new religious elements and developed the process. Church was established in London in 1966. Its members initially lived in a commune in Mayfair, West London, before moving to um, Zutul in Mexico's Yutan Peninsula. They later established a base of operations in the United States and New Orleans. You're, you're right, Jay. Prosecutors investigating the Los Angeles murders committed by the Manson family in 1969 suggested that they were links between Charles Manson and the Process Church, although no proof of such connection was ever provided. The allegations damaged the church's reputation. In the early 1970s, sociologist William Sims Bainbridge studied the group, producing an in-depth account of its activities. In 1974, McLean and de Grinson uh, separated. They later tied to. They either tried to continue the group with a small following, but it folded in 1979. McLean re, uh, retained the allegiance of the majority of the church members, reforming the group as the Foundation Church of the Millennium, and taking into and, and talking and um, taking it into an explicitly Christian direction. Yes, the organization. The organization was eventually reorganized into the Best Friends Animal Society based in Kanab, Utah. And one of the things... Which is a little horrifying to me, that last bit. Well, Because my ex-wife was big into animal rescue, and they had some dealings with Best Friends Animal Society. And a good friend of mine actually just got back from going to the Best Friends um, place there in Kanab, Utah, so... I didn't know they had any connection to any of this stuff. Jay's connected to this ep- uh, the, the episode topic without even knowing it. <laughs> right. It just goes to show you how far the tentacles go. It, it it really does. So so with that so with so with that said, one of the things in the documentary that I thought was very shocking was for some reason they were obsessed with German shepherds, which d- All right, so that German shepherds were created to be well. They're they're shepherd dogs, so they were created to be guardians and stuff like that. Now, um, I clicked on the link to the Robert de Grimson page, and they have actually a little more about it. So apparently, the process believed that God was made of four separate parts, equally worthy of worship: Jehovah, Christ, 
Lucifer, and Satan, and that a person must worship all four in succession to gain enlightenment. Um, I, I, I don't buy that part, but okay. You don't buy that that was part of what their teachings were, or you don't buy that as something valid no i don't think that i i i don't think that you should be worshiping satan or lucifer i've that's just that's just me that's just me i don't mean okay to... we're, we're we're in danger of going drastically off topic here <laughs> i agree with you okay however comma <laughs> however comma <laughs> that is that is not what we're talking about today right right we can go off on that particular rabbit hole another one another day that's a rabbit hole for another talk <laughs> another <Exactly>. episode <laughs> <laughs> and Harrison's probably looking at you like, Dad, what were you what was in your coffee this morning? <laughs> right. Why are we going such a why are we going off topic again? Because this is what we do. This is what we do, Harrison. <laughs> <laughs> Harrison's smiling and laughing. Um so Charles Manson had incorporated some of his um some of the material that he learned from the process into his own sermons, as it were. I, I, I don't, uh, his Allegedly's. ramblings or whatever. His yeah. what? Allegedly. Yes. Um, and, and a lot of things that the process talked about in some of their teachings found its way coming out of Charles Manson's mouth when he was talking about the coming helter-skelter, trying to start a race war. Mm -hmm. all, all of the... all. Of, Charles Manson wanted to be responsible for bringing about revelations and the race war, the, the coming race war that he thought that, that, that was inevitable. Right. Now, dial it back a minute. We know for a fact, thanks to Tom O'Neill, that there is the MK Ultra connection to Charles Manson. And one of the things that we have talked about in the past and what we agree on is that Charles Manson is a was a creation of MK Ultra and we don't know if whether or not Charles Manson was a a, a failure or a success of MK Ultra it depends on your definition what were they trying to do one of the things that they were absolutely trying to do was to get people to do things that normal people would not do um, like become like um, this sounds crazy even for me to say this. MK Ultra tried to create super secret super soldiers. Try and say that. Whereas like people could be would could be super agents, not even know it, be activated and go out and, and kill people. Now if anyone watches any like spy movies, yeah. Like um for example, um Jason Bourne, right? The Treadstone thing. This should be sounding familiar to you because that is a theme that is used over and over again in espionage fiction is that idea of someone has a deeply implanted post-hypnotic suggestion that they will follow through with without even realizing it as long as they hear a certain phrase or they get triggered by a certain... Um, image or something like that and throughout that process in any of these books or television shows or movies or whatever they always include drugs with that so this should not sound all that off the other thing to point out 
is that even before MKUltra was widely known, this super soldier thing was like Captain America. He was turned into a super soldier by the OSI, right? right? Which is a predecessor to the CIA. And that's what we're talking about here. Yeah, uh, I think you're confusing the um, uh, Steve Austin's OSI with Steve Rogers' OSS, I think. That's it. All right, you're right. OSS. Yep. So the, but the OS, but the OSI was an actual thing, wasn't it? Uh, the, o- um, the OSS eventually became the CIA um, okay. under Alan Dulles, which, which is another, <laughs> you want to go down a r- another rabbit hole, let's talk about <laughs> Alan Dulles for a minute. <laughs> because Alan Dulles, for about 20 years, was in charge of the CIA. He was the director of the CIA. Right. And that JFK fired him after the Bay of Pigs when it became obvious that um, Alan Dulles lied to Jack Kennedy in an effort to start a war with the Soviet Union over Cuba. And that the um, what was supposed to have happened and, how, and whether or not the Cubans were pre- prepared to help us out, kick out the Soviets out of Cuba, turned out to be bogus. There's a lot. Of, right. There's a lot of things that happened at the Bay of Pigs that were not supposed to happen, and JFK figured out this guy lied to me. And a lot of people would say that Alan Dulles is one of the people who was responsible for the death of JFK. Right. So let's just back out of that rabbit hole for a second because I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want this to become another JFK episode. Right, it, but at the same time, this is all further demonstrating how this is the crux of so many conspiracy theories exactly so <laughs> where were <laughs> oh where were so, we yeah okay so we were talking about mk ultra and the link to uh to charlie uh, charlie manson charlie. now thanks to tom o'neill there's absolutely no doubt in anybody's mind who has actually read this book that there is a connection with charles manson and MK Ultra through Dr. Jolie West. There's no question at all. There's no because the thing is obviously the two knew each other. Dr. Jolie West, who was given ample supplies of LSD, was passing this LSD off to Charles Manson and the Manson family. Somebody was financing certain aspects of Charlie Manson's um, crusade, as it were, whatever. Charles Manson had resources that somebody who is essentially a homeless bum should not have had. Right. Okay. Um, and a lot of, a lot of people clung to this charismatic figure um, through because of psychological manipulation, as a lot of people have called it. Right now. So this is kind of like where we go off on the deep end. <laughs> Yeah, now is where we're going. Now, now is where we, because right now we're talking about un, undisputable facts. Right. Okay. These are things that have come out in congressional investigations, published in books. So this is, all of that is conspiracy fact so far. Now we take a turn. Now, now we take a turn. A couple of years later, how many years later the Zodiac shows up? in the San Francisco area. And much of what the Zodiac killer or killers, and I'll get to that in a second, 
much of the terminology used in the Zodiac killers also seems to come from a lot of biblical imagery. And there are a lot of similarities to what the Zodiac killer said in his letters to the police and the press that sort of mimics what Charlie Manson had said in some of his um, crazy rhetoric and the process and some of the things that they had said in some of their crazy rhetoric. Now, what's the, what's the timeline? How much time had elapsed between um, Charlie Manson's um, killing spree, uh, the, uh, the murders of um, uh, uh, Sharon Tate and the lobby. Yeah, the, uh, let's see. Do, do, do. Uh, come on. So the murders happened in 69, right? In August of 69, right? And then let me look up Zodiac Killer. He was in 70s, if I remember. Uh, no, December to October of 69. So we're talking a series of months between August and dis- between, yeah, no, yeah, between December 68 to October 69. So the Zodiac Killer was operating, and then during the time that the Zodiac Killer was operating is when Manson's uh, family went out and killed their, those people on uh, the Tate-LaBianca murders because that happened in August. So the Zodiac Killer started killing in December of 68. In, as he's killing – the Manson family goes out in early August of 69, murders um, Sharon Tate, Lino, and Rosemary LaBianca, and four other people at Tate's home. And then the Zodiac Killer is caught up with them, or he stops anyway in 1969. Right. So, so, so there's a, 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 a period of time where the Zodiac Killer and the Manson family killings overlap. Mm-hmm. And that there is a lot of satanic symbology in many of the Zodiac killers' um, letters to the police and, and letters right. to the local newspapers. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, this is this is where conspiracy theorists can can go a little too far mm-hmm. okay and I'm, and I, you could tell that i'm I'm, tr- I'm trying very carefully i'm parsing my words very carefully there seems to be some similarities between the zodiac killer and the manson families and then but the thing is is that there there are many things that um that are similar that are also different because the thing is is that the zodiac was was never caught as far as we know and that he remained anonymous even to this day. And as right. during my research, there turned out to be at least four different suspects to the Zodiac what? killer. And there's a th- yeah. there's a theory bouncing about is that there isn't just one Zodiac killer. There may have been the original Zodiac killer and a couple of copycats. There's also yep. the theory that they were working together in tandem. They were, right. wor- they were working. There were, they no- were aware of each other. They were working together. They knew each other. Yeah. One of the things that the police got hung up on is that they thought that it was just this one guy. It had never occurred to them that maybe it was a couple of guys, Satanists working together 
as far as as far as I can tell. Right. And I'm sure that there are people who know a lot more about the Zodiac Killer than I do. There are, oh, yeah, there are, there's there are people who have dedicated their lives to trying to determine who the Zodiac Killer was and to break his cipher. And we're probably going to have one of those people as a guest on our podcast. Uh, we're, uh, on the podcast, there are... Let me rephrase this. There's at least one person who is studied the Zodiac Killer who is going to come on our podcast next Wednesday. I'm going to re- I'm recording an interview with him next Wednesday. That's fantastic. It's amazing that he actually agreed to come on the show. Um, <laughs> because, and he doesn't agree with a lot of my theories. Um, yeah. And that's okay. And that's okay. That's I mean, the thing is, is that well, it's to be expected. Well, the point of the podcast is not to ca- have people come on the podcast and uh, who always agree with me, <laughs> you know. Right. right. <laughs> you and I have disagreements once in a while. Exactly. All right. So there are aspects to the Zodiac Killer, such as the satanic symbology, taunting the police through these letters, giving the police clues on how to catch the guy, but they never did. That we know of. Okay. So flash forward how many years later and another serial killer shows up in New York City. Now, this is the one that we could look to and we can point at and we can say that we know for a fact that that there is a connection between the process church and the son of Sam or the sons of Sam. Right. And so the son of Sam killings have started happening in 77 in July or no, not July. When the hell was it? Late 75. So in December of 75. So it's basically six years later. Yeah. About six years later. And the thing is, is that on, um, on the website biography, they have this, this, um, this wonderful synopsis of, of, of what had happened and all, all the dates. And it was just like, it was 13 months and that there, there were a lot of, a lot of sightings, a lot of reports, a lot of people who had witnessed things associated with the son of Sam killing and a lot of eyewitness reports and working with sketch artists sort of paint this picture it's not just this one guy. It's not just this one David Berkowitz. Because it's like if, if you go through and you scroll, if you scroll through a lot of these other um, websites devoted to the, the Son of Sam serial killer or the son of, uh, Sons of Sam serial killer, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of sightings and a lot of sketch artists. There's like, um, and descriptions that don't match up with David Berkowitz, who later confessed to being the son of Sam. And if you didn't think, if you thought that um, we didn't go down the rabbit hole far enough, <laughs> talking about MK, the MK Ultra Zodiac connection. Well, let's, let's talk about the son of Sam for a second here. And the yeah. thing is, so the thing is, is that one of the first letters that they received this, this, the, um, with this guy had basically said, here are all the clues, come and find me. And all of this had led investigators into uh, the Carr brothers who lived 
just around the block from where um, David Berkowitz lived. And their father, um, Michael and John Carr, their father, (laughs) Sam Carr, had a German shepherd that was allegedly this is this sounds just this sounds so crazy i can't believe i'm fucking <laughs> saying this they were getting instructions from this dog to go out and kill people <laughs> i quit I, I give up i can't i can't no, do this don't. with a straight no you face. don't <laughs> you couldn't quit this if you try i couldn't quit this if this tried <laughs> so the thing is is it in in the the son of sam letters Lays literally mentions John Carr and his nickname John Wheaties. Yep. John Wheaties is the nickname of John Carr, who many people believe is one of the accomplices of of Son of Sam. You do a quick you do a quick search of Sam Wheaties or Sam Wheat's car, and the thing is, is that. He's even listed in the yellow pages at the time in the phone book as Sam Wheat's car. And some of the locations mentioned in the Son of Sam letters is actually landmarks in the area that everybody knows in Yonkers, like um, uh, the gutters, which is an actual... um, Landmark is actually a, a, a water aqueduct that uh, kids used to hang out, and that's where local Satanists went to commit their satanic rituals and sacrifices. And, and, and around the area in, in Yonkers, where David Berkowitz and the Carr brothers lived with their father, there are all these bodies of German Shepherd dogs that had been sacrificed all over the local park in in that neighborhood and that the police knew of because this was this had been a regular occurrence so what else is there to say about the car brothers oh and by the way howie carr who is a big huge radio uh radio sh- uh, show host in the boston area sam carr is his, is his uncle or was so just just Oof. to throw that out i thought that was weird yeah that's a that's that's an odd kawinky dinky there. And in the letter, it refers um whoever wrote the letter referred to themselves as a son of Sam, not the son of Sam, a son of Sam. Right. And it, depending on which which conspiracy theory you follow, there there's some people believe that in some of the letters he insinuates that there's more than one Sam too. That's the other thing that a lot of that 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 throws a lot of people off. Yeah, and that um, in in uh, what they called I think it's like the pump house for the aqueduct is where they right. they had uh, committed a lot of their their the rituals. A lot of the other things that were spray painted were a lot of the phrases and the terminology used by the process church. And it, what, what was shocking to me while rewatching this documentary and again, listening to this book by uh, Murray Terry, who wrote the book ultimate evil, who makes these connections better than, than, than I am right now. Um, because I, I think that Murray Terry was, uh, was shameless in doing all of this in, in doing the work 
And it was just like um, he took nothing for granted. And he also didn't publish anything unless he had corroborating evidence. He didn't like if it was just one source that he had, he wouldn't publish it because he was an investigative journalist back when journalists actually did investigations and literally followed the facts. That was one thing in the documentary that kept coming up over and over again is that he's he's not he wasn't someone who would just say, oh, someone said this. So it's got to be true. It was like, all right, well, someone said it. Does anyone else agree with them on that? And correct me if I'm wrong, but in his book, in the end, doesn't he have like a huge um, bibli- not uh, uh, not bibliography, what do they call it, when he cites his sources? Right. Yeah. His 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 cited works part of the of, of his book. Um, it's it's pretty thick and it's pretty in, in depth. All, all of his, all of his footnotes is like, all of his footnotes is like something that's like the police should have like grabbed a hold of and said, oh wait a minute, there's, there's, here's all of this evidence that proved that the, the other sons of Sam, as it were, are still out there, still at large. Right now, before we go and say that the police are incompetent, we do have to acknowledge that police do operate within a political environment, which means they are sometimes forced to do things for political expediency. And when you've got New York City and the surrounding area basically being locked down, the pressure is on to just find who's fucking did it and and get them off the streets kind of a thing. So as long as it's plausible enough for the public to swallow and end the fear the police sometimes are pulled off of the case. They are said, nope, this is this is good enough. And as long as more people aren't dying, we're good. We caught this one guy. The murders have stopped. Obviously, we got the guy. End of story. That's That right. was their attitude. Right. And even in a lot of the police in the documentary on Netflix, that's the attitude they have. All of these conspiracy theorists, that Maury Terry, he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. We got the guy. We got the guy. And there's there is a part of me that wonders, I, I wish I knew or understood more about body language. Are they saying it so vociferously to convince us or to convince themselves? I'd have to say that um, it was mostly to convince themselves. So David Berkowitz admitted to being the son of Sam or a son of Sam. Mm-hmm. And the killing stopped. Any normal person would say, oh, that's it. Oh, that's it. It's over. Hey, they got the guy. And that, but Maury Terry had done his own investigation. Here's a guy who started off his career working at IBM on the inter-IBM, intercompany magazine. Yep. Every big company ought to have one. If the Fedora Chronicles was big enough, I think we'd, we, it would be nice if we had one. In, interviewing oh, yeah. interviewing members of of the staff and and uh, um, uh, every uh, every issue there's a new uh, letter from the CEO. Hey, this is what's going on with our company. Congratulate so and so on five years, ten years, fifteen years, twenty years, twenty five years right. with the company. And do some investigation into their um, their career at the company. Blah blah blah. Well, he gets obsessed with the Son of Sam case, starts doing his own investigation, 
and then gets hired as a news reporter with the Gannett News Service. And they start publishing some of his stories that the other newspapers in the region would not touch, like the New York Times, uh, the New York Post. And what's the other one? I can't remember the, other, the name of the other one. It's, uh, it's like the Daily Mail, but it's in, in, in New York City. Uh, these other newspapers, yeah. um, they would publish sensational stuff about um, crazy things that David Berkowitz would say. And then they would, Maury Terry would, would uncover this little nugget about the Carr brothers and that they would, they would publish that story with, but, but taint it in such a way that anybody who thinks that David Berkowitz had accomplices is obviously crazy or they they won't let this go. Uh, They want to, they want to keep the, the sensational aspect of this going. And I don't blame them. Right. Because it's 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 a great, captivating story. Am I wrong? I mean, hell, no. we're still talking about it. <laughs> right. So Maury, Taylor, Maury Terry starts doing his own investigation with with the newspaper, with the news service. And the more digging he goes into it, the more that he sees the connections between the son of Sam's killing and the Process Church. And the Process Church had another splinter group called the Children. And in later interviews, in the 80s and 90s, David Berkowitz admitted that he was a member of the Children cult. And he was obviously not alone. This is also public knowledge. Just do a a search via via, uh, via Google or DuckDuckGo of um, David Berkowitz and the family. Do that right now. And tell me what you get. Harrison's doing it right now. David Berkowitz and the family. Let me just cut to the chase. This is an established fact that he admitted to being a part of a cult. Did you find anything interesting, yeah. Harrison? I think it's, uh, it's being hidden. This, this is also where we interject here that it's like the search results that he's getting off of Bing is different than what he's getting on DuckDuckGo. If you actually go yep. to DuckDuckGo, Harrison, first, and then do your search that way, tell me what you see. I don't know if you're seeing it, Jay, or... I'm seeing it. There's an article. I just went to the the first one, which was an article from MSN, where they're basically, um, here's a quote from Joseph Borelli, retired NYPD detective. When you're coming and you're criticizing me and that criticism is just criticism is justified. Fine. I'll take that. But you, you, when you go making up stories like a cult, I don't buy it at all. And do, 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 where is the, I I, yeah. I I I I I think it's funny as I think it's um actually the family cult. It's the children, isn't it? The children. Why am I saying yeah? <laughs> and this again, the first one is from MSN. And it's a really brief article. I'll read its entirety. One of the latest true crime editions 
to Netflix's library, The Sons of Sam unpacks the evidence that investigative journalist Mari Terry accumulated over decades of researching the Berkowitz case. Terry's central thesis was that Berkowitz, the so-called son of Sam, didn't kill six people and injure seven others by himself. Terry believed that Berkowitz had been part of a more widespread cult when the Son of Sam crimes unfolded between 76 and 77. The officials tried to portray Terry as a conspiracy theorist. Um, oh, while officials tried to portray Terry as a conspiracy theorist, many colleagues and detectives noticed his solid evidence. So what were the most compelling revelations from Terry's lifelong investigation? Ahead, we've rounded up four pieces of evidence that suggest Berkowitz didn't ask alone in the Son of Sam case. And then you got to click on the next page. Right. Which is annoying to me. And the next page does not have that. Doesn't have. So the thing is, is like you look up John Carr. Who 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 was John Carr Wheat? And here here are these two two brothers who are associated with David Berkowitz. David Berkowitz gets captured or, or caught mm-hmm. by the police. And these two brothers wind up getting killed. Or one of them commits, in, quote, suicide. Yeah. One of them gets commits suicide in North Dakota in 1978, which is also tied to um, a murder that Berkowitz claimed he, or seems to have knowledge of a woman by the name of Arliss Perry. And she was from North Dakota, but married at, mar- murdered at Stanford, right? Right. And so then John Carr was killed or suicide, suicide suicide in North Dakota in 1978. And then Michael Carr was in a fatal accident in 79. His brother died the next year. Uh, now, Murray Terry, in his investigation, goes to Minot, is it Minot, North Dakota or South Dakota? North Dakota, I believe. Yeah, Minot, North Dakota. Winds up killing himself after telling his live-in girlfriend, his fellow co-workers, and his fellow cult members. And this is, again, this is an undisputed fact. He told everybody who would listen that he was marked for death. That he, that, and he even said he knew who, who the killer was, 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 was going to be. He had a newspaper clipping in his in his wallet and you pull it out see this this is the guy who is going to kill me and that's john carr you're saying both brothers john and michael carr they were either killed or committed suicide shortly after david berkowitz was captured according to one of the websites that i am referencing back and forth to this is from bustle.com both Carr brothers would die prematurely in the years following Berkowitz's 1977 arrest. Just months after Berkowitz was detained by police, John was shot in the head in North Dakota, specifically Minot, North Dakota. His body was found at his girlfriend's apartment. She told police that he had committed suicide before claiming that he was murdered in relation to the Son of Sam investigation. Michael Carr is the one who died in the car accident in Manhattan about a year and a half after the death of his brother. Just to be absolutely, totally, perfectly clear, because we're bouncing back and forth between Carr brothers. I know that this might sound redundant, but I just have to be absolutely, totally clear with you on this, Jay. So the note you have written down is that everyone in the press police in Mino 
knew the Carr brothers were Berkowitz's associates in an occult. And they shared info with New York City, but New York City didn't care. So everybody in the region surrounding Minot who was investigating the Carr brothers' death reached out to the police and the FBI offices in New York City and the press, the newspapers in New York City and said, we have irrefutable proof that David Berkowitz had accomplices. And, right. the, and, and, they, didn't, and, and they didn't care. Kate, and here's, it, here's a quote from NY police officer Richard Johnson. Why were there three cars, five different descriptions, five heights, different shapes, different shape, sizes of the perpetrator? Somebody else was there. But again, police have to operate with a within a political environment. It's more important you have someone dependent on than than it is to find out everyone that's responsible. So long as the murders stop, right? And that's just especially in a big city, you're going to have that. That is part and parcel to the police. That doesn't mean all the police officers buy into it. It doesn't mean they like it. It just is a fact, right? Because the mayor of New York City is not going to want to be known as the mayor who presided over New York City during all of this shit going down, right? They want to be seen as the person who caught the guy that was doing this. And it becomes political theater to some extent. And this is not a criticism on the police. This is just a fact of life, just like with the military. Some of the things the military does is political theater, part and, part and parcel to what it is. They're an arm of the government, right? Cities are the police departments are the arm are an arm of the local government, the city or town government or county or whatever, right? So what I do find funny is that, well, not funny, he he, more like funny, hmm, um, is that the children is something that having you know being a conspiracy theorist, I've heard of the children in other contexts right and it's believed that the children and i again i've this is me hearing things from a lot of different sources and stuff like that the children are supposedly a group of people who are consider themselves to be the children of satan and they are murderers they're rapists there was a a serial a serial rapist who claimed to be a member of the children who died before he went to trial. Um, there's serial killers who have mentioned they are one of the children. So you hear that if you if you look into these things, you hear this a lot. That's a, does that mean there's actually an, organ, an organization behind it? Probably not. It's probably more like some guy heard it and then he started doing creepy shit and then Someone else heard it. Co yeah, you know what like I mean? Cop like copycat it, killers. But I mean, but, but exactly. Um, but in this case, this actually seems like it's tied to a cult. Now that is that cult, the process or the children, which is a splinter group of the process. Right. It's hard to say. It, it certainly is. Now I'm going back on my notes here. This is a little bit more succinct and it's a little more, uh, direct and to the point than anything I could have ever written, Jay. This is from thecrimeaholic.com. 
I'm just going to get to the end of the article, and the title of the article is, How Did John and Michael Carr Die? Did Somebody Kill Them? About six months after David's arrest, 31-year-old John Carr was found dead at his girlfriend's apartment in Minot of an apparent suicide where he shot himself. See, this, this article is more decisive. There's some speculation that the death might have been a murder. This is the same guy who is like carrying around a piece of paper, a newspaper clipping, and said, this is the guy that's going to kill me. John was reported to have a daughter. Not that anybody cares about that part. In 1979, John Carr, who was 27 at the time, died in a single car accident in Manhattan on the show, meaning uh, the miniseries that we're talking about on Netflix. It was also stated that Michael had struggled with drug and alcohol addiction and had joined the Church of Scientology. While their sister, Wheat Carr, did not deny John's involvement in the occult, there was circumstantial evidence apparently connecting her brothers to the murderers. So... Yeah, everybody, including their sister and probably their dad, was aware of the cult. Yeah, that's that car accident. Just looking at the pictures, it looks like he ran into the median going into a tunnel. Yeah, and, and it was just a lot of people had speculated was 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 he pushed? Was um, uh, well, there's no there was no brakes, there was no skid marks leading into the collision. So was it suicide? Exactly. Was it suicide? Was the brake line cut? Because the car was freaking demolished. Yeah. You know, and let's be honest, how forthright were was the investigation into that collision? It was da- right? it was David who was living in Minot and had said that he knew David Berkowitz and that he was telling everybody that he would listen to him about how he knew David Berkowitz. And it was and he had so much information about the Son of San killings that the only way that he would have known about that was that he, if he was actually there as a spotter or as one of the shooters. That's, again, ir- right. all right? And now there's, there's I don't remember which murder it was, but there's one murder where the suspect was seen on one side of a, of a city block and then within minutes the suspect was seen on the on the other side of a neighboring city block. Right. And if I remember correctly in the documentary, they actually say he would have had to have been like world-class runner quality in order to get from point A to point B in the time frame listed. Which David Berkowitz, if you've seen pictures of him, he's not. It's he's hard. not a runner. He's, he's not. He's... he's He's as much of a runner as I am. There's a there's there's all of the circumstantial evidence that proves that David Berkowitz did not act alone. Despite the fact that the police have done everything that they possibly can with the help of the press to squelch any of that speculation. Well, I would say individual police officers were working with Maury Terry and they didn't believe that he acted alone. Right. Yeah. One of the guys who was a victim of David Berkowitz, who who lived, um, he was he was one of the guys that got shot but didn't die. Yeah, he claimed that Berkowitz wasn't acting alone. So this is where the the political influence comes in, right? We don't want people thinking that there's more than one Son of Sam murderer. We don't want people thinking there's more than one Zodiac killer. 
So if you look at David Berkowitz, the Zodiac Killer, and Charles Manson, one thing that they have in common is that there's allegations that they did not act alone. In Charlie Manson's case, it's blatantly obvious, right? So if Berkowitz was part of an organization, if the Zodiac Killer was part of an organization, and I use organization probably wrongly here because Berkowitz seems to be in a group that was organized, whereas the Zodiac Killer may not have been. Right. right? We, we, we admit that. We can, we can admit that uh, one or two things is probably true. Either there's there was the Zodiac Killer, the original Zodiac Killer, and that there were copycat killers. And I might be mm-hmm. wrong. I might be wrong. Or there were three or four guys who were working together as part of a cult. Right. And they and they were organized and they were working together. And it's not that unusual for that to happen. Um, serial killers are not normal. So that unusual has to be taken with like a massive grain of salt. Right. But it is not unknown for serial killers to work together, whether cooperatively or competitively. It is not unknown, right? Yeah. Well, now, if you think about it, everyone associates Charlie Manson with being this horrible person. And there was, what, seven people killed? Eight if you include uh, Tate's daughter or Tate's un- baby? Yeah, un- more she was baby. pregnant. So eight people. How many people did the Zodiac Killer kill? Well, just go back and look at the timeline. Right. So the investigators agree only seven confirmed victims. Right. And then Berkowitz was acute, was convicted of killing. Let's see, one, two, no, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Now, not all of them that he was sh- that were shot by him died. So. Where is yeah? Just like let's see, how many people did killed six people, wounded seven others? Right. In Charles Manson's case, what caught everyone's attention was that the cult aspect of it—that it was the family, that he had a this powerful influence over these people, that he got them to go out and kill, right? Here's a charismatic character who could use drugs and sex and rhetoric to get people to do his bidding. Right. Now, the Zodiac Killer is infamous because of the letters, right? Let's be honest. Seven people in in just under a year getting killed in a large area. The San Francisco Bay Area is a big area. Seven people being murdered really is not horrifying. Over that time frame, we're talking a period of what, 10, 11 months, right? So why were people terrified of him? It was because of the letters. It's because he was reaching out to the press. He was reaching out to the police. He wanted people to know or they wanted people to know that they could do this and there was nothing anyone could do to stop them. Yeah, that, that's, right? that's that's the crazy thing. Right. And, and with Berkowitz, it's that he was – he killed six people, wounded seven others in a period of of months as well, right? It was, let's see, December 75 to March of 77, right? So, well, that's over a year. But still, he's shooting two people. Two people had to go. Right. right. Specifically couples making out and doing whatever couples do. Exactly. But 
in a city like New York, a shoot, you know, basically, what, seven shootings and a stabbing, right? Yeah. Or eight shootings and a stabbing, something like that. Anyway, in New York City, over a period of over a year, if you look at the numbers, the notoriety these people have does not fit. What does fit is the way they were taunting the police. They were engaged in creating that terror, that level of terror, right? So like one thing, what is it? Mind hunters, right? One of the things they talk about on there. What's that? It's a great show. I'm I'm heartbroken that they canceled it. I am too. It was fantastic. Um, But one of the things that they talk about is, or they, they mention in there is the statistic that the FBI believes that there are no less than 30 to 35 or no less than 30 serial killers actively operating within the United States. But if they're smart and they're operating in different principalities and municipalities, then there's no way to link them. Exactly. And here's the other question that I wanted to address here. Is it how do serial killers find each other and then work together? Like, let's just say, and I I, got to be careful how I say this because I don't want another knock at the door. Uh, what if I were to say to you, hey, Jay, you know what? I'm a serial killer and I like to kill um, people who won't shut the fuck up in movie theaters. That's my <laughs> gate. That's my game. That's my target. I like to follow people who won't shut the fuck up in the movie theaters while the, theater, the movies are playing. And I like to sneak up behind them. And I either like to pop a cap in their heads or I like to strangle them with their own intestines. But the thing is, I need some help. Would you like to be a serial killer, too? Well, I was watching a, a series. I want to say it was on Netflix, but it may have been on one of the other streaming services where they're talking about uh, serial killers, right? Yeah. And there was this one group of three men who were captured, and these were they were also linked with Satanism. Three men working together. Their MO, their MO was they would take abduct women, put them in a van— cut off their breasts, and then basically fuck the disembodied breasts. Oh, my God. How does three people have that same fucked up mentality where that's some sort of goddamn kink? I have to – I got to be careful how but, I say this, Jay. It has – they have to meet somewhere – like a cult, like a satanic cult. Now, if, well, it doesn't have to be a cult. I mean, but but it's just I mean, there's things that we can't really explain. Right. So, like, for example, if someone is abused as a child, right, specifically, mostly women, they then are more likely to be in abusive relationships after that. The people who who are abusive recognize them as being a victim, as being easily controlled or manipulated or whatever into becoming a victim why the fuck is that what is it about these women that these people see is it something in their body language is it something in their mannerisms is it something in their their speech patterns the the way they dress the way they look something uh, you know what is it that they're keying off of we know that that happens that's scientifically proven why wouldn't it also go the other way where if you're a person who likes to kill people, you recognize that in other people. You're not wrong. I just have a hard time imagining how it would happen, where it was just like you and I are like having coffee together at work, and somehow it's like I says, hey, listen, I recognize something about you. I, 
I can tell you're also a serial killer. <laughs> well, I don't think it comes up in casual conversation like that. It's one of those things where you meet someone, you start talking, you start noticing some things, you start asking questions in a roundabout manner. You know what I mean? Um, that is it, – it's not, it's not like when you meet another musician if you're a musician, right? right? Or if you're a veteran and meet another veteran, you know? In the case of like a musician – you meet people in a bar and you start talking and you realize that they're a musician because of the, the, their choice of music that they prefer to listen to, the way they talk about it. Right. There's a dozens of things that are small clues that add up in the back of your brain and suddenly you go, bing, you're a musician. You meet someone at work and you talk with them and then there's something in their mannerisms, their speech patterns, the way they behave, the way they talk. Hey – you're a veteran. You served in the army or you were in the Navy or whatever. You know, there is all of that. So it would stand to reason that that also happens if someone is a killer or a murderer, or serial killer, rapist, whatever. They would be able to recognize that in other people. That stands to reason. It also stands to reason that it would take multiple meetings for that kind of thing to be to be really noticed where they would feel comfortable mentioning something that might otherwise get them in legal trouble. There's a whole that just makes sense. I'm, for me, you're making the point that all of these people meet together in a satanic cult or something <laughs> similar, like fellow musicians and podcasters meet in a bar or at, at, right. at, at or wherever you buy your musical equipments. Like if 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 you go to Guitar Center to pick up microphones and audio cables i can pretty much tell that you're either a musician or a podcaster okay right and depending on what equipment you're picking up would lead you to lean more towards one or the other right now I, now but if you're if you're at a satanic cult meeting you guys already have that connection i have yeah, a heart i don't i have see. a hard time believing that if you and i were serial killers and we met at work I don't know how would it come out because there was a pedophile at the place where you and I had worked and he liked to download child porn. And because I was, quote, into computers, he would talk to me about how does, you know, before he said he liked to look up child porn, he was like, oh, I like to look up weird shit on the Internet. And of course, it's like, yeah, me too. My whole my entire bag is unexplained phenomenon. Right, because that's how you and I became friends. Right, and this other guy is like, no, I like to look at like n- n- like naked young prepudescent girls. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I went right to HR and I said, this is what the fuck this guy had just said to me. And it's right. like they looked at me and it says, oh, you, you mean the guy with the weird Hitler mustache? Yeah, that's the guy. Yeah, oh, we have guy. we have we the have one that's been creeping everyone out around the office for the past three years. Yeah, that's him. <laughs> oh, it wasn't even three years, but I, I know what you mean. And it yeah. was just like and after a while, it was just like and it's like and then it's like after he was fired for I don't know why. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. He, <laughs> he called me up on my cell phone. It was the first cell phone I ever had. It says, Eric. I just got an alert. The FBI is coming by to pick me up because I downloaded some child porn. I don't know what to do. How do, how do I get rid of this? How do I get rid of this? And I says, <laughs> and like, I ain't telling you shit. And I said, when they pull into the driveway and they pull into the driveway, 
simply open up the door, walk out slowly with your hands above your head. And when when they say Eric sent us, you know, it's me because I fucking turned your ass in and I hung up the phone. Now, if you were a serial killer and you told me you like to kill people who are parked along Lover's Lane, I'd, I'd fucking rat your ass out. I'm an asshole that way. If you're well, into I, weird shit, I'll fucking rat you out. I have to sit. I have to put my foot down and I have to say, I think that's how they these people meet each other is at satanic cult meetings. I don't think so. For one reason, one reason only, right? You and I are, are, are both, well, at least quasi-religious now, right? Right. We've been, we've been active in churches in the past, right? Um, there is an official church of Satan, right? There is a, I, I forget who the Pope or whatever the guy's name, what title they use. There is an official church of Lucifer, right? Um, Luciferians is what they consider themselves are, are sat- Satanists, you know, depending on which church you're talking about. But most of that is show. Most of that is people who are basically giving a middle finger to other organized religions, specifically Christian organizations. Christian religions in that case, right? When you're talking about a cult, cults tend to be very small, right? It is rare for a cult to get any large size. And what Berkowitz is talking about, what what the Zodiac Killer, if we're including Charles Manson, the Zodiac Killer, and David Berkowitz in the same cult, Manson and the Zodiac Killer were literally in California Berkowitz was literally in New York City. Now you're talking a nationwide cult that is operating underground. This right? is exactly how I wanted to end the show with the, the with, with these questions. Go ahead. Right. With the with the ties to North Dakota, right? Because that's where uh, John Carr was killed or killed himself, depending on how you you know if you buy the official story or not. Is it possible in the seventies? Pre-internet, pre-cell phone, is it possible for there to be a cult that operates underground over that large of an area? Because cults are formed by interpersonal relationships. That's how cults operate, right? Cult normally has one charismatic leader, and you have to be able to talk or be in that leader's presence for that influence to be felt. So is it possible? Are you telling me you believe it's possible that from the late 60s to the mid 70s, a cult could have operated in the United States nationwide without anyone being the wiser. I have to answer this with this caveat. Okay. I have to say the answer is yes, because it is already so. And I hope you get a hold of this book by Terry Murray or Murray Terry. And you actually read it, and he makes the case that you're trying to make right now. The answer is yes, of course it can exist because it already does. How they meet and how they all interconnect through all of this. They have an underground network, obviously. How you, right. how you and I, and we know the dark web exists, and that's how they're able to keep in touch and work together. Well, nowadays. Nowadays. How they did it with underground publications, 
And it's like you have like the local church, uh, the process church that actually had a building that had a brick and mortar. And of course, it's right. like you see somebody walking around with a with a pentagram and you ask them, hey, are you are you a member? Well, no, that's they as you said, they see something in each other. And, and it's like, hey, are you also into satanic shit? Well, why? Yes, I am. Oh, come out and hang out with us. See, that's how they get. That's how see, they hook up. I, I made the allusion to like musicians and veterans earlier, but the closest thing I can think of in my life that comes across this is tabletop role-playing games. I'm a nerd. I'm into tabletop role-playing games, Dungeons and Dragons, GURPS, Fudge, all of this stuff, right? I love that. It's fun, but it's kind of like sometimes when you're talking to people and you bring it up, you kind of don't want to talk about it directly because there's still a bit of a social stigma attached to that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, you know, so uh, I notice you like to read like fantasy novels like uh, Game of Thrones. Um, you like games too? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? That's like the closest I can think of to this, except instead of it being, I notice you like Game of Thrones, it's more like, notice you uh, like watching a lot of really, really violent shit on the, on the interwebs there. Yeah. You ever kill anyone? <laughs> I mean, there's a large leap between those two things. You know, one is you might be socially ridiculed. The other is you might get thrown in fucking jail right, for the exactly. rest of your life. That's there's what, this yeah. big wide thing in there. So clearly, if what Mari Terry proposes is true, they were able to do it. And one of the things I find fascinating about cults and all of this shit is how does it happen? Like I – school shootings are something that has been a large concern of mine for several years. Yeah, because you're a parent and you have a pulse. Exactly. And a heart. So one of the things that pisses me off is when people start saying things like, well, we should be able to just red flag students who might be – responsible for it. I'm like, how are you going to do that? Do you realize that if you take every single shooter, there are certain things that every single one of them has in common. And if you go by that and all of those red flags, 75% of the student population are, should be red flagged for possible serial killers. And if you go by less than that, because there are certain things that some serial, that some shooters don't associate with other ones, right? Right. Now you're expanding that. Do we just treat everyone like they're a potential that school shooter? Now you're getting into some weird, scary shit because I I, I think that a lot of this is self fulfilling prophecy. Whereas it's like well, you, if you my say, my point though, yeah, my my point though is that they there's more than what we know or what we're keeping track of. There is an X factor involved that we don't recognize, but clearly these serial killers, if they do know each other and they do discuss things with each other in some way shape or form there's an x factor that they're aware of and they can identify but the rest of us cannot this is part of the satanic scare in the late 80s early 90s and i I remember when everybody from oprah winfrey and geraldo rivera to larry king we're all talking about the rise of satanic cults. And this is exactly the same reason why people were so terrified of 
like these satanic rituals and somehow there's a connection. Maury Terry made the connection that a lot of these killings and abductions and missing person cases that are unsolved has something in common. And he was convinced that many of these abducted children, and this is going to get back to the frazzle drip episode that we talked about. <laughs> and this is this. I, and I'm, I'm, I'm being told I have a hard break in a, in a, in a, in a couple of minutes. Okay. Okay. The Maury Terry was convinced that all of these satanic killings and all of these abductions on all of these unsolved missing persons are somehow interrelated through satanic cults or something more than that. I want to just slip back into and I want to this is I'm going to end the episode with this before I take my family out to breakfast. Because they're looking, she's literally looking at me. The mad woman is looking at me through the window, wanting to know if I'm going to wrap this up. I'm hungry. The, the mad bitch is hungry. I'm going to end the episode like this, and I'm going to, like, I'm going to sign off, and I'm going to talk to you later about the, another episode, so we're going to talk. Now, here's the thing. If the CIA, through MKUltra, was trying to create... Groups like the Manson family or the process or the children. Why would the CIA want to start satanic cults and a satanic cult uprising? You're looking at it backwards. Or why would they do this? Now, you say it's backwards. Right. Now, so LSD is what? It's a hallucinogen. Yeah. Right. I don't think they were interested in creating satanic cults. I think after you've had enough hallucinogens and hallucinations, you start blurring the lines between reality and what isn't reality. And that is what lends itself to people being able to be entertained by Satanists or Satanism. Is They've seen these horrible visions. They've had these horrible illusions because no one has good trips all the time. There's always bad trip that someone has. And if you're having a lot of LSD, you're going to have a lot of bad trips. So I think after they've had so many bad trips, some people, something in their mind just kind of snaps. And that's what leads them to embrace these satanic cults and these darker practices. I don't think the, I don't think the CIA gives a shit about any of that. They're just trying to make people easily, more easily manipulated. Right. And then what happens when you have a bunch of people who have been broken down so that they're more easily manipulated? You have someone who wants to manipulate them, find them, and then start manipulating them. And that's how Charles Manson ended up with his family. And if the children is some form of organization, that is probably how it exists if it's tied to MKUltra and doesn't go back further than that. I actually wonder if this is some kind of some fear-based psyop, and, and and the final purpose has yet to be determined by by podcasters such as ourselves. And I'm gonna. No, I, you're you're still stuck on the the government thing. What if it's international? You know what? That's a topic for our next podcast. <laughs> and I have to let you go. I got to take these people right. out to, uh, to lunch. We're going to talk later and we're going to continue this discussion with Paige Elmore and what she's discovered on this very topic 
of the MK Ultra Satanic Cult Connection. So I'm looking forward to that. Stay tuned. Congratulations on surviving another episode of the Thor Chronicles radio show. Find out more about the Fedora Chronicles by visiting our website, thefedorachronicles.com. That's where you can find our show notes, past episodes, and articles. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram by simply searching for us on those platforms. Don't forget to join our group on Facebook and follow us on Twitter so that you can keep up with what we will be talking about in the next episode. Facebook, Twitter, and our email address, fedorachronicle at google.com are great ways to drop us a line with your comments and show topic suggestions and if it's any good we promise we will read your comment on the air support the show by contributing to our patreon page patreon.com slash chronicles for mere dollar a month you get early access to the podcast updates on what we're doing and for five dollars a month you get all that and a t-shirt and coffee mug of your choice Terms and conditions apply. Thank you to all of our listeners who are already contributing. You can also support the show and show off your incredible, impeccable taste by buying our merch at zazzle.com slash store slash Fedora Chronicles. The theme songs for the show are Royal Flush and Black Cabaret by Olive Music. All other music on the show is listed on the show page and has been provided to us by Premium Beats from Shutterstock. Copyright The Fedora Chronicles 2020, all rights reserved. On behalf of my co-host Jason and I, this is Eric Renner-King-Fisk signing off and reminding you to keep your chins up and your fedoras on.